This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Who will lead this state for the next four years? It's one of the most important decisions Colorado voters will make this election. And we are airing in-depth interviews with the candidates for governor to help you make a decision. Last week, Democrat Jared Polis joined us. Today, Republican Walker Stapleton, who's now state treasurer and before holding public office was an investment banker. As we did with Polis, we'll occasionally pause the interview to add perspective when Stapleton makes a claim about his opponent. Walker Stapleton, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I want to note there's been only one Republican governor elected in the last 45 years in this state. You're running in a state that supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. At a recent event, former Congressman Tom Tancredo introduced you as a candidate who will do for Colorado what Trump has done for the United States. Is Tom Tancredo right? Uh, I have no idea, but I've said many times that just because an individual makes a decision to endorse me does not under any circumstances mean that I endorse all their views or opinions on things. And uh, I'm trying to have uh, as big a tent approach uh, in this race for governor as I've had in two prior statewide races for treasurer. And I'm proud of the fact that over two terms as treasurer, I have consistently worked and collaborated with Democrats on some big economic policy legislation for Colorado, like debt consolidation, which totally changed the way we issued debt amongst all of our state agencies except higher ed and the, and, uh, the Department of Transportation. And uh, my record of forming the, the first ever land trust investment board with Senator Mike Johnston, who I consider a friend. So I think I have a demonstrated track record of, of working on consequential economic policies for Coloradans with Democrats the entire time I've been in office. Now, you say you have no idea when I ask the question, is Tom Tancredo right about whether you're a candidate who will do for Colorado what Trump has done for the United well, States? Well, I would say that that's Tom's opinion. And I'm going to let Tom have Tom's opinion. And I'm focused on running to be governor against Jared Polis. Do you like what Trump has done with the country? And do you want to bring that to Colorado? I've said many times during the course of this long, adventurous campaign that I will support uh, the federal government and the president when I think his policies are beneficial to Colorado, uh, such as tax policies that more than 70 percent of Coloradans have benefited from. Uh, If you make $60,000, your federal tax bill has gone down from $1,700 to $100. I think that's consequential. Uh, And I will stand up against policies that I think are misguided and make life harder for Coloradans. And I think that's what ultimately Coloradans want is to elect a leader that will agree with the federal government and work on policies that benefit Colorado and stand up against policies that don't. It's why uh, back in the primary, I said I was concerned about the administration's J-1 visa program for South American students, many of whom come to work in our uh, ski resorts and work the lifts, and why I've been concerned for some time about the tariff policies ever before the, the policies were announced or the subsidies. What are you seeing as the effects of those tariffs on Colorado right now? You're seeing huge fluctuations in the prices of wheat uh, and and corn. We export more than a billion dollars of meat. I think an escalating trade war with China over meat exports. About we have about 650 million of meat exports that go directly to China is something that really hurts our our agriculture community. And I think we need to have an end game and end strategy in place uh, when we engage in these you know trade negotiations. Otherwise, it just brings economic harm. Um, and I think farmers are willing to have short term pain for long term gain. But if if you don't have an, an end strategy, strategy, I think it's 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 misguided. So it sounds like you're not seeing an end strategy at this point. No. 
CBR reporters have traveled the state for the last couple of months talking to people about what's on their minds as we head into the election. And uh, one of the folks we ran into is Rusha Lev of Golden. She's worried about growth. We have thousands of people coming into this state and we don't have resources for them. And that shouldn't happen in a state where we have like the lowest, you know, joblessness rate. Walker Stapleton, is Colorado growing too fast? No, I think that one of the great things about about Colorado that has been the case has been people love moving here. And a lot of people have moved here from from the coast, from New York and the East Coast to California and the West Coast, because we have abundant natural resources and incredible quality of life. And I want people to continue to feel like they want to move and be psyched to live in the state of Colorado. The so you'd, only you'd way like to see more that, folks here. Yeah, yeah, the only way we do that, the caveat on that, Ryan, is that we need to manage our growth better. And the only way we manage our growth better is by finding a long-term solution to our crumbling infrastructure and finding attainable housing. And I use the term attainable versus affordable because what may be affordable for somebody in the metro area on a certain salary may not be attainable for somebody in western Colorado or down in Pueblo. And those are the two priorities that I will first address as governor, fixing our crumbling infrastructure over the long term and making housing more attainable for young people that are moving here. Let's unpack that to Rhodes. Uh, You oppose a sales tax measure on the ballot this year backed by the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. You support a bonding proposal called Fix Our Damn Roads. Is there something above and beyond that ballot measure you think is the right way to address what you call crumbling infrastructure? Yes, absolutely. And the reason I I don't support the the sales tax measure um, that the Chamber of Commerce is pushing is that only 40 cents on the dollar will actually be spent on roads and bridges. And this is, you've touched on something that is a difference between myself and Congressman Polis. Congressman Polis talks a lot about multimodal transportation, public transit, and mountain uh, mountain biking and, and road biking lanes. And I think that our infrastructure road problems are so, lanes, acute, but... are so acute that the precious money that we have to dedicate to this should be dedicated entirely to roads and bridges until we solve our problems. Let's pause here. It's true that Stapleton's Democratic opponent supports alternative forms of transportation, but Jared Polis is not a fan of the sales tax we just talked about. He told us he doesn't personally support it, but would implement it if it passes. Polis says he doesn't think it's the right way to raise money for infrastructure. Okay, back to Walker Stapleton. But yes, absolutely, we need to do more than fix our, our, our dang roads. I think we need dedicated sources of revenue in the general fund that can and should go to infrastructure improvements over the long term. What gets cut? What suffers as a result of that? Nothing. New, new sources of revenue. One of the things that I've talked about that is going to happen and it's going to happen the next legislative session is that uh, whether Ryan Warner or Walker Stapleton wanted, uh, sports gambling is coming to Colorado. The Supreme Court has said uh, that this is okay. Okay, across the country, there are big companies like Buffalo Wild Wings and Hooters that want to have sports gambling. And I think we can uh, effectively, the way it's worked in other states, is they tack on a 10% or 15% tax uh, on the revenues of sports gambling um, and dedicate it to infrastructure improvements. And I am advocating for that. Could you do that w- with the legislature's help? Simply say that money will go here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, right. And there is a, there'll be legal challenges, like there always are, about whether it's a tax or a fee. But that is an example of a dedicated source of revenue. And whether there would have to then be a vote under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Okay, and to the idea of attainable housing, what role can a governor play in that? 
a couple different roles. Um, I think state government can be a valuable catalyst uh, for creating more housing. We have a, a, a supply and demand problem. As somebody who has a background in economics, it's a simple supply and demand problem, um, but we haven't done a good job of fixing it. First of all, I think we need uh, meaningful construction defects uh, reform that we have not had, and that includes a right to cure for a builder over a 90 or 120-day period. If what um, they so build that they is don't not have satisfactory to, fear, right. to, their, to because, the people living in there. Well, and, and if you're building, Ryan, a 300-unit condo development, chances are you're going to find a wire that's misplaced in a bathroom. The developer should be able to cure that over a 90 or 120-day period without the threat of litigation. And that has stifled uh, the development. If you look at what's happened in, in Denver, for instance, uh, last year we had about half the residential condo permits pulled than we had 10 years ago, even though the population has gone up by more than a million people. That's number one. Number two is I think a governor can work with CHAFA on the tax credit process, it's which is Colorado antiquated. Of, uh, housing uh, housing finance. Yes, sorry. Colorado Housing and Finance on the tax credit program, which is somewhat antiquated, which is v- very badly backlogged, so that if a d- developer is willing to put a portion of his or her development towards affordable housing, they can have as fast and effective an approval process as possible. Very briefly, what evidence do you have that construction defects reform will actually unleash the condo market? The evidence that I have is that if we had meaningfully fixed it, I think that we would have had we would have more supply on market. But that's not um, evidence. Is, that's what you think. Think. That's. I think that that's that is anecdotal evidence of a problem not being fixed. I think that a lot of condo developers are not developing because of the threat and fear of lawsuits, and a lot of the legislation has unfortunately been watered down by different interests, home builders versus condo builders. And I think it's absolutely the case that we would have more condos being built if we remove the threat of litigation. On the subject of growth, Denver is a finalist for Amazon's second headquarters, which would bring an estimated 50,000 workers to the area. Do you want Amazon here? Yes or no? I'd like to have them here. You would? Yes. Okay. Uh, what concerns would you have about their about their coming? <sighs> Uh, the concerns are, do we have the infrastructure capabilities and workforce uh, housing that would make us competitive? And I think that there's deep and large questions around whether whether I could answer yes to that question. Um, but in a perfect world, would I like them here? Absolutely. Uh, they are high-paying jobs. They stimulate uh, our economic growth. They are a catalyst to economic growth. And I'm not for us giving Amazon handouts, but I'm for them getting the exact same tax credits at businesses that are of a smaller or medium-sized nature uh, would receive. My guest is the Republican candidate for Colorado Governor Walker Stapleton. We'll take a break, but before we do, something to clarify. He said under President Trump's tax cuts that someone who earns $60,000 would see their tax bill shrink from $1,700 to just $100. We found an example where that's true for a married couple with two children, The tax liability for anyone else with that income would depend on a whole range of factors. All right. After a break, what would happen to Medicaid patients if Stapleton is elected? He says Democrats are using a scare tactic when it comes to this issue. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's continue our conversation with Walker Stapleton, the Republican candidate for governor. He's running against Democrat Jared Polis, who joined us last week. 
Let's talk about health care and another issue that came up on our road trip, Walker Stapleton. This is from Gail Knapp, whose family farms cantaloupe in Rocky Ford. She was at the family farm stand when we met her. My husband and I pay $3,300 a month for our health insurance. We're both healthy people. You've just laid out a plan for health care. What in it would be the most help to Gail Knapp? This is one of the reasons why I was an early supporter of the president's tax plan, because it repealed the individual mandate for health insurance last year in Colorado. That's the requirement to have a requirement of an individual to have health insurance. And last year in Colorado, more than 130,000 Coloradans were forced to pay a tax because they couldn't afford health insurance. Out of that population of Coloradans, 80 percent of a household income of $50,000 or less. Phantom tax, nothing in return. I think the best way that we can fix this system, we have a moral obligation, I believe, Ryan to make sure that Medicaid um, is extended to all the people that it's been extended to because half of the Medicaid population are kids. Uh, And as the father of a 10-year-old, 7-year-old, and 4-year-old, we have to make sure that we're providing coverage for the most vulnerable among us, which are our children. But the only way we do it is working with companies like Optum, who can now do 90% of the services an emergency room can do at 10% of the cost, or Innovage, which has innovated uh, how we deal with with seniors that are on Medicare. Uh, What we don't do is make false promises of a government-run system like Congressman Polis has done, which would bankrupt Colorado's economy and send thousands upon thousands of jobs fleeing our state. It's why two years ago, I was co-chair, as you might know, of the bipartisan effort uh, to defeat a government-run health care plan with Bill Ritter, the former Democratic governor. Okay, stop tape. Democrat Jared Polis has called for a Medicare for All system. But he thinks it would be a boon to business, quoting from his plan, by taking the burden of administering employee health care off the shoulders of employers, businesses can focus more on their core products and services. All right, back to Walker Stapleton. You talk about the end of the individual mandate. There are some who would say that in the end is going to make health care more expensive because young, healthy people have no incentive to be in the pool and to lower costs for everyone. What do you say to that? I disagree. I think the way that we add more incentives is to have more insurance companies competing for business. We need to get back to, I've got a, a number of millennials who, who work on our campaign, and they tell me that their frustration with the healthcare system is they can't find a healthcare plan that matches up with their health needs. And they want to get back to a catastrophic uh, health insurance plan with a higher deductible um, for people that are generally healthy. And the only way that that happens is more companies competing in the marketplace. And companies have left the exchange, our health exchange, um, in droves since we started the exchange because there's been no incentive for companies to stay in the exchange except bad press with premiums going up. And so people that join Colorado's health exchange today uh, get very limited choices of carriers. And the way that you actually increase choices uh, for consumers, healthcare consumers, is having more companies competing in the marketplace. And the way you do that uh, is transparency in billing, uh, whether it be emergency room billing, which my running mate Lang Sias um, was a sponsor of in the last legislative session. It should be extended all across our health care system. Then to Medicaid, you said you think those currently on Medicaid ought to be able to stay on Medicaid. Is that what I'm hearing? That's because correct. And th- that's a scare tactic that's been used against me uh, repeatedly. We have a moral obligation. If you talk to uh, Jenna Hausman, the CEO of Children's Hospital, she will say that that, that she believes, and, and I agree with her wholeheartedly, we have a moral obligation to make Medicaid work uh, because of the fact that half the Medicaid population are kids. You have said, though, in your latest health care plan 
that while it's necessary to defend the social safety net, we must rein in costs. Absolutely. Let's focus on rein in costs. How do you do that then without shrinking the Medicaid roles? And, and let me just get it this clear from you. Is there a person on Medicaid today who you don't think should be? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know specifically the population. I would I would take a an approach towards reining in costs by I think we need to do a review of Hickpuff and how Hickpuff has dealt with Medicaid expansion. So that's a uh, that's there's a, been some let me double just say billing. What is. You can't yeah. just throw out okay. Hickpuff <laughs> and just let it stand. So Hickpuff <laughs> is healthcare policy and financing. This is an, a, a, a state agency, right? And that is the primary state agency. We have a number of state agencies that are some uh, that are all kind of in a tangled web involved with Medicaid expansion, which equals bureaucratic turf wars. But I would say uh, Hickpuff is the largest entity that's responsible for the expansion of Medicaid. Um, I think we need to look at how that process has unfolded through audits, not to blame anybody, but there have been problems with double billing. There have been unequal reimbursement payments. Uh, there have been people that have taken advantage of the system uh, in order to enrich their corporate interests. Because um, when you know you have the government as the backstop payer, you may not act, not act in the best interests of the patients. And so reviewing how HICPUF has managed uh, Medicaid expansion in Colorado is incredibly important to reining in costs. And transparency in billing is incredibly important. One more time, Walker Stapleton. Is Medicaid the right size in terms of the number of patients that are on it in Colorado? I, I don't think that that's the right question to ask. The right question to ask well, is I mean, how I, do we make it, is how do we make it, how do we improve access, how do we make it affordable, and how do we create a system that doesn't bankrupt the state of Colorado I deem at it the, the right same question time, to ask, and, not, and, I'd but, like, and I'd like you to answer it. Is Medicaid, Medicaid is a system we've got, and we have a moral obligation to make it sustainable for Colorado's future. And I will do so as governor. To education, you've been quoted as saying that you're adamantly opposed to the tax increase concentrated mostly on the wealthy to pay for schools. Right. A what? tax increase, by the way, that my opponent, even though he's running for governor, won't take a position on, which is very mystifying to me how Congressman Polis could not take a position on Amendment 73, uh, which is one of the biggest ballot amendments that, that voters will have a chance to deal with. Let's pause again. Stapleton's characterization isn't quite right. Democrat Jared Polis told us that he's uncomfortable with 73 because it's a state constitutional amendment, which Polis thinks limits government's flexibility. As for why Walker Stapleton is plainly against it, I oppose it because it is a progressive income tax that won't fix K-12 education. When I was the leader uh, of the effort to defeat Amendment 66, which was the largest proposed tax increase for K-12 education. This, too, was I a statewide yes, uh, tax increase. Statewide tax increase a couple years ago. I debated my good friend, Mike Johnston. He, um, he also ran for governor yes, on the Democratic side this year. I love the context you provide. I oppose that because the money wasn't going to get into the classrooms. And this money from Amendment 73 uh, reminds me of 66 a couple years ago because the money isn't properly earmarked. The only money that is earmarked uh, goes to children that are special learners with uh, disabilities, and that I am in favor of. But money that doesn't get earmarked when it hits the school district level may end up not in the classroom where it belongs. Why haven't you released your tax returns? 
Well, I've been totally transparent with uh, with my taxes, um, much more transparent than Congressman Polis has been. How can you say uh, that I, if you haven't released any I of your up, returns? I said because when I became the treasurer of Colorado, I set up a blind trust. Um, I was involved in taking a public company private at the time. I put my assets in the blind trust. And the whole spirit of a blind trust uh, is to avoid conflicts of interest with other financial institutions that I dealt with as a treasurer. I actually talked to what Governor Hickenlooper. What does this Hickenlo- have to do with your tax returns? Because because a blind trust, the tax returns are not subject to being released. And so uh, it violates the whole spirit of a blind trust if the tax returns from a blind trust are released. There's nothing in a blind trust that says you can't release your taxes, is there? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you release the taxes, then the trust doesn't become blind anymore. And you say that you've been and more transparent than Jared Polis, but he, he's released seven years of his tax returns. That was when he ran for Congress. That's right. But he hasn't released any of his tax returns during the decade that he's been in Congress. Throughout this campaign, you have cast yourself as a champion of riding the ship when it comes to PARA, the public pension fund. It was facing a $32 billion deficit. Lawmakers sought to address that gap in the last session with a late night vote. Here's what you told us during the primary. I wanted to try and get the best deal possible and until the last minute possible. I was not physically even at the legislature. I think I was asleep by the time they finally passed the deal, uh, which was, you know, 30 minutes prior to midnight. And that was my poor, poor attempt at humor. It didn't sound like you were joking. I was awake. I was I was awake. I was in touch with with the people that were that were uh, involved in the bill. Um, but I didn't want to. Why politicize did you tell us you were asleep? Because I because I I've made a lot of jokes about about you know about if it's raining and our transportation problems. You know, it makes sense to stay in bed. I've I've had uh, poor attempts at humor that my wife has reminded me many times. And so but you say I was um, not physically. Even I, that's at the true. Legislature. That's absolutely true. Well, how how is the champion of para reform not at the legislature? Because. In the- because because uh, I was an announced candidate for governor, and I found it hard to deal with this issue as the treasurer of Colorado when I haven't been an announced candidate for anything. And the truth of the matter is, from a practical standpoint, when you're an announced candidate for governor, uh, you're going to politicize a process. And this process was too important to politicize. During the primary, you spent over a million dollars of your own money on the campaign. Most people would probably think that's a whole lot of money. And yet there are some in the Republican Party who cast Jared Polis, your Democratic opponent, who has spent $18 million of his own money on his campaign as the out-of-touch millionaire. Is that a bit of a disingenuous claim to make? Not at all. He spent 20 times what I've spent on this race. So uh, you're comparing a mountain to a molehill. Um, in terms of personal resources, Jared has spent. I, let me just. Uh, Jared let me just has this. spent more minus, money. Minus Jared Polis. You're not poor, Walker. No, Stable. I, I, just, I just wonder if it's a disingenuous claim to I, make. I'm I'm successful. I've been a. I am proud to be a successful uh, businessman, and will be after my adventures in in elected office and public service. And I don't uh, I don't disparage anybody who's successful, but I think it's important to understand the underlying facts here. And the underlying facts are Jared has spent more personal resources, more than $20 million uh, than has been spent by Republicans and Democrats combined in the history of prior Colorado governor's races. Now, that doesn't mean money isn't pouring into this race from the outside. Recently, it was reported that Americans for Prosperity, a political advocacy group backed by the the Koch brothers will be investing in your campaign, perhaps to the tune of as much as a million dollars. 
Uh, while it sounds like that money might be welcome uh, when you look at what your opponent is spending, I wonder what kind of influence comes with a, a sizable contribution like that. Probably the same kind of influence that comes from jo- Good Jobs Colorado, which is being backed by checks from George Soros, a wealthy international financier, and Tom Steyer, a, a billionaire from San Francisco. Okay, so let's talk about it. <laughs> what Have you had conversations with the Koch brothers about what they might no. want with that money? Not, n- n- none. Zero. You've not sat down with either of the Kochs in not. this campaign? I have not, and I don't think they could pick me out of a lineup. Really? No. They're going to spend a million dollars in a campaign. You don't think they recognize the candidate? I am not part of their process, and 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 I have never sat down. I've never. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with either of them. These next questions are going to sound a bit like a job interview, uh, which this is, I suppose, the ultimate form of one. What is your greatest leadership strength, and what's your greatest weakness? My greatest leadership strength, I think, is having run a publicly traded real estate company. I, I never remember asking um, somebody if they were a Democrat or Republican. Uh, only well, that if, would be a weird thing uh, for only, an employer yeah, to do. That would be. That would be. Um, but the fact of the matter is that's how people make a lot of decisions in public policy, and I think it's a, a bad way to go about things. I'm a data-driven person. I deal a lot with numbers, and I, I'm proud of the fact that I've dealt with numbers and, and look forward to dealing with numbers a lot as governor because I think numbers are hard hard to politicize and they and they illuminate truths in our system. And you're uh, you did and not jump in with oh, your and my weakness. weakness. Yeah. Well, I would say the you know the weakness is is that I wish in dealing with the pension system it had not become as politicized uh, as it has been. We this had isn't no ability like a weakness. to do it. I, that I, sounds I'd say like it's a fact a, that something got politicized. Well, I th- say it's a weakness because it, it 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 relates to how I to my style at the time and how I chose to uh, perhaps go about something in a way that could have been uh, maybe less bombastic um, and maybe um, maybe more empathetic. Uh, to the people that I was that I was talking about, which are our public workers. We are making room for the personal in this conversation, not just the political. I understand you have a great love of jazz. You travel to New Orleans, I understand, for the jazz scene there, and you've supported groups that help musicians stay sober when they're on the road. Yes. Um, I've been really involved and passionate uh, about music. I've gone to see music with both Governor Hickenlooper and Mayor Hancock uh, in New Orleans, in fact, um, and right here in Denver at Dazzle Jazz, which is by far my favorite jazz club in Denver. A little plug for Dazzle Jazz. And I wonder uh, what the folks at Jazz at Jacks are going to think <laughs> about that. And I was uh, sorry, sorry, sorry about that, but I was involved um, in uh, in uh, efforts right after Katrina to help rebuild um, public school music programs, and and have been involved in a lot of nonprofits down there. And it's a huge passion of mine. I've been to Jazz Fest uh, nearly twenty times over the years, um, and I have my basement, which is where all my um, all my artifacts are relegated to now that I'm a married father of three young kids. Uh, I have a lot of music memorabilia, including a, a prized autograph from Joe Henderson, one of the most amazing tenor sax players. Um, I've got all sorts of different stuff. I went to see Miles Davis as a kid in Dizzy Gillespie with my jazz band. I played a, a Stradivarius trumpet that I still have that's a silver trumpet that's in my, my uh, luggage closet. So I love music. Why don't we end on a jazz song? What would you pick? Uh, I would pick... Um, Shade of Jade by Joe Henderson. Walker Stapleton, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate you.
Walker Stapleton, currently state treasurer, is the Republican candidate for governor. At CPR.org, you can hear my conversation from last week with the Democrat in the governor's race, Congressman Jared Polis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For a century, people in southern Colorado voted mostly for Democrats. That changed in the last presidential election. Why? Well, many voters said they felt forgotten by leaders who were too focused on urban and suburban communities. It's the focus of the latest Purplish, a podcast from CPR News about Colorado's political identity. Here is host Sam Brash. Drive south of Denver on I-25 until you're near the New Mexico border. West of the highway, there's a small picnic area, just a concrete slab, a roof, some tables. Look around and there's nothing but prairie and a line of foothills. After a while, there is one thing you might notice, though. A steel door with a handle lies flat against the ground. What happened beneath this door, it helps explain decades of politics in southern Colorado and why the region mostly voted a certain way until just a couple of years ago. Reporter Nathaniel Miner visited this site recently. He takes the story from here. Carolyn Newman stands next to me as I lift the heavy door. She's the director of the local historical society. And originally, this would have been all dirt, no concrete. Wow, it's a staircase that leads down. Oh, that's got to be... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 12, 13, 14, about 15 steps down. This is a pit where 11 children and two women hid during a bitter coal mine strike back in 1914. It was the largest pit in this area because it was the maternity pit. People were staying in these tents for up to 15 months during the strike, and women went into this bigger pit to give birth. More than a 1,000 miners and their families lived on this site. Back then, coal mining was huge down here in Los Animas and Huerfano counties, but conditions were terrible and pay was low, so miners walked off the job. The company called in the National Guard. And then one day in December, violence erupted. On the day of the massacre, it was chaotic. There were people with rifles on both sides. But the National Guard had a machine gun. They opened fire on the strikers. Guardsmen burned the camp to the ground. No one knew those children and women were in that pit. And so they suffocated there. About two dozen people died in what came to be known as the Ludlow Massacre. The event marked a turning point in the fight for better wages and working conditions. And there's another reason Ludlow is important. The local politics changed. The miners turned, I would say, against the Republican Party and became more democratic. And for a long, long time, that's the way it was. Mining slowed down big time after World War II. But steel mills and manufacturing in southern Colorado continued to ensure that labor was a big player here. And where you have labor unions, you have Democrats. The Democratic Party ran the show for decades. If you won that party's primary, you pretty much won the election. But here's the thing. The Democrats' hold on the area is not what it used to be. 
whenever people are discontented with their lives, and people are discontented in southern Colorado because of the lack of opportunity and jobs, then people tend to look at another political party. And that's exactly what happened in 2016. Many counties in southern Colorado voted for now President Trump. In some cases, it was the first time they'd flipped red in decades. Almost immediately, people cited southern Colorado as a Western example of the Rust Belt effect. After years of steady support for Democrats, blue-collar workers found something attractive in Trump's populism. So this week on Purplish, we're going to look at the costs of political neglect. What happens when a place feels forgotten? And what might that mean for the midterms and beyond? Okay, so this episode is going to be something of a tour of southern Colorado. And we're going to start by leaving the Ludlow Massacre site and driving about an hour north on I-25. That's where you'll find Pueblo, Colorado, which is generally thought of as the capital of this region. Allison Sherry, CPR's justice reporter, recently visited the city as a part of CPR's election road trip series. Allison, set the scene for us. What kind of place is Pueblo? So the first thing you notice when you go down I-25 is that when you enter Pueblo, there are huge smokestacks and a railroad and some sort of dusty old historic buildings. These are all emblems of what the town used to be. It has this tradition of being a steel town, and and that lore carries in every conversation, even now. There are fewer steel jobs, but everybody I talked to brought up the steel mill, whether I asked them about it or not. And Pueblo was definitely contested real estate in 2016. How did the presidential candidates uh, appeal to voters in this part of Colorado? Well, they they both went there, which is one thing. They both made stops. Bill and I talk about Pueblo all the time. And Hillary Clinton gave a standard stump speech. We're supposed to bring people together. We're supposed to unify our country. We're supposed to solve our problems by working together. She talked about being the president for everyone. And they said, well, do you think they'll like you in Pueblo? And Trump was Trump. I said, I think so. They said, well, you have a lot of Hispanics slash Latinos in Pueblo. And I said, I think that's why they're going to like me, actually. That's why they're going to like me. But his message was much more tailored to the audience. And we are going to put the miners back to work. They have to be put back to work. He talked about bringing manufacturing jobs back, keeping money in America. He talked about keeping jobs in America. He talked about crime. It was clear that Trump's message was resonating with people in Pueblo. How'd things break down on election night? Clinton won Colorado by five points, but in Pueblo County, it was too close to call on election night. Democratic Party leaders are still reeling from the news that many in the party crossed over. Trump narrowly won the county by less than one percentage point. And this was a huge departure from 2012, when President Obama won the county by 14 points. This means clearly there were a lot of people who both voted for President Obama and now President Trump. When you went to Pueblo, did you meet anybody who had been a reliable Democratic voter and then voted for Trump in 2016? Yeah, I did. There's one guy who really stands out, actually. 
we went to an old steelworker bar called Eilers. We are actually the second liquor license after Prohibition, I believe, ended in 1933. Now we have the coldest beer on tap. And this is where I met Jay Yaconi. My mom drugged me down on 4th Street when I was six. He's 64 years old. He's now a contractor. He actually said he met John F. Kennedy in 1962 during this historic stop that JFK made in Colorado. He goes, how are you doing, young man? And that, to me, I didn't know the significance of it at that time. But now, yeah. And I was a Democrat probably most of my life. Um, and he voted for Obama twice. Obama was the coolest president we've ever had. What did he say appealed to him about Trump? Well, he said he doesn't really like Trump as a person. Trump is not presidential. He's mean. It's like they said on TV. He runs it like a mob boss. But that the U.S. was doing too much abroad, too much money was going out, and really that there just needed to be a refocus on problems at home. He said he wanted to keep the money in the United States again, you know, you know giving Pakistan $10 billion a year. I, I feel we were, we were hungry, too. We, need, we needed to keep that money. And how does Econi feel about that vote today? I think he still feels good about it. I mean, he actually was a little sheepish, saying, you know, he doesn't love the president. But he likes where Pueblo is going, and he likes where the United States is going. It seems like Pueblo's building... 100 new houses a month out in Pueblo West. Yeah, and I I work in that business right now, so for for us, it's really good. As a contractor, he's been getting work. He's not sure if that's totally because of Trump, but he doesn't think that Trump has hurt the economy. Okay, so among the people you talk to, is this guy, Jay Yaconi, representative of Democrats and Democratic voters who ended up voting for Trump in 2016, uh, or is he more of an outlier? Well, I would not say that one voter speaks on behalf of everybody else or other voters, but I do think, after talking to a lot of people there, that Trump's populist message, sort of simple, crystal, I will bring jobs back to America, I will bring manufacturing back to America, that really resonated, mm-hmm. you know, and he talked about protective trade policies, talked about getting rid of Chinese steel dumping. All that sounds really good to people, you know, who haven't seen the economic prosperity that Denver has in the last eight to 10 years. And I think that's still the case. You know, people may not like Trump personally. They don't like his tweeting and all that. But they still feel like some of his policies are personally benefiting them. And this is a story we're we're somewhat familiar with, right? Not necessarily always from Pueblo, but from places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio, these, these Rust Belt states where where Trump won and a lot of people swung from Obama to Trump. I mean, is is that right? Is that the same sort of story that you noticed? Yeah, Donald Trump won the 2016 election, really, if if you really want to look at the whole national map, by about 77,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Much of what, of how he won over the people in those states were attributed to the core message towards the working class. I do want to push back a little bit here because the storyline has become a common way to explain Trump's election in 2016, that he won over working class white voters because they felt left behind by the economy. But studies since the election have shown that it was more cultural anxiety than economic anxiety that drove white voters to vote for Trump. I mean, when you were down in Pueblo, did people say that this was about economic issues, things like trade and jobs? Or, or was it about things like immigration or, or feeling like a stranger in your own country? Well, I mean, I guess 
I know that narrative, but I think we should first point out that Pueblo is a majority Latino town, and I never really got a sense from talking to people, um, people in both parties, that you know the reason why Trump won and not Hillary Clinton was because of something to do with race. But I think your broader point about the cultural divide is is sort of true that in smaller towns and rural areas that there's just not this feeling of, you know, moving forward. A lot of Pueblo doesn't have sort of the intellectual industry that Denver does or Boulder does. They don't have the defense industry that Colorado Springs does. So they're small business owners. They they work in the service industry. They work in manufacturing. And they live more hand-to-mouth. They live more subject to the whims of the economy. And I think much of what had made those communities thrive for generations has been sort of broken up or or changed or moved away. And to the extent that Democrats weren't speaking to those anxieties, that's a cultural piece. I think that's true. Okay, so if Democrats in Pueblo shared these sorts of more rural perspectives on politics, I mean, what does that really mean? What issues do they say make them different from Democrats in other parts of the country or even other parts of Colorado? Well, they're a little bit more socially conservative. There are a lot of Catholics. There's a lot of pro-life Democrats down there. And, you know, we talk to the clerk and recorder, Bo Ortiz. He's a staunch Democrat. He has photos. He even has a painting of Obama over his desk. (laughs) We're very different Democrats than Denver and Boulder. You know, as you know, we love our guns. We're all hunters. And, you know, I'm a hunter. My son's a hunter. You know, I I remember riding through the east side with the 12-gauge on my bike so I could go kill uh, doves. After the Aurora Theater shooting, when the Democratic state legislature passed a new gun law, Puebloans actually recalled one of their elected officials over that vote. I would say Pueblo Democrats know they're different, and they know they don't feel represented, and they're willing to go against their own party if they feel like someone else is better. And does that feeling of of being politically neglected bleed over into local politics? Like, are Democrats struggling on a local level or is it more at a state and national level? Democrats still far outnumber Republicans in voter registration. And, you know, they still tend to elect Democratic office holders. In fact, a lot of times there's not even a Republican who decides to run in some of these local offices. So I think there may be a perception that state and national politicians are more focused on urban corridors. And that was something that local Republicans recognize as a big political opportunity. You know, when I was in Pueblo, I went to the state fair. Lucy Pets surfing and stunt dog shows presented by Pueblo Toyota and Swifty Swine racing Pigs. And, and that's a big deal in Pueblo. It's every year. Everybody talks about it. Everybody goes. From Denver, people go down. I ran into the GOP county chair, Marla Reichert. And, you know, what's interesting about her is two years ago, she was not the GOP county chair, but she's still widely credited for flipping the county from blue to red. And she was in a great mood when I talked to her. She was handing out donuts, sitting underneath this big poster board that talked about all of Trump's accomplishments getting out of the Paris Climate Accord and the tax cuts package. Um, I think people voted in the last election for their family and their own individual economic well-being. You know, our, our steel mill is expanding and growing. People are getting jobs. People are getting promotions. They're better off financially. You know, I think that turned the tide here. People were tired of being unemployed and of being broke. The point is, I think people in Pueblo have spent a long time feeling ignored, you know, when it comes to politics and the economy. And Trump saw that. That's what local Republicans saw. Trump saw it. And by listening to these voters, speaking to their values, speaking to their anxieties, they've been able to break through that Democratic firewall. 
Well, the latest episode of Purplish continues tomorrow. We'll head out of Pueblo into some really small towns where it turns out feeling ignored and neglected is relative. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts, and you can hear it through Election Day on Colorado Matters. We have a cool opportunity for a Colorado musician. Maybe you know that each winter we do a big holiday show on stage in front of about a thousand people with many thousands more in Radioland. Well, this year we're leaving a space in the lineup open and it might just be for you or your band. Show us what you've got and you might land a spot at the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, which tapes in November. Find out how to enter right now at CPR.org. That's CPR.org. Okay, moving along. There are now more than 90 distilleries in this state, and whiskey seems to be the darling among spirits here. Coloradans in particular love this stuff, leading to huge sales growth. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus gives us a taste of what's happening. It's happy hour at Avenue Grill in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood. The bartenders are dressed in these clean, classy uniforms. They look like they could have been working the bar a hundred years ago. This seemed like as good a place as any to meet this guy. Uh, my name is Ryan Negley. I am in uh, title. Uh, my business card, it says, uh, raconteur of spirits and libations. Um, I, I sell whiskey. For Vapor Distillery, Negley is also president of the Denver Whiskey Club, and he's kind enough to not shame me for getting ice in my expensive whiskey. State tax records show that spirit sales are up a whopping 35% since 2010. Hard liquor sales have grown more than three times faster than beer in that time. And it's whiskey that's driving the increase now. You know, vodka crushed to the entire 80s and 90s. Like, they destroyed it. And it's somebody else's turn now, is what it comes down to. Liquor tastes cycle somewhat dramatically. What's big now probably won't be big 10 years from now. But it's also more than that. For the whiskey connoisseur, there is a dazzling array of brands to choose from. Whiskey is a really big adventure, and it's, I've had that one, now i got to have that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. Now, oh, there's one over there, I haven't had it, i got to have that too. Negley says this comes at a time when consumers want a variety of artisanal and local brands generally. The same impulses that drive the demand for small local beer or farmer's markets. Negley's an unabashed whiskey evangelist. Ron Vaughn takes a more sober view. He runs Argonaut Wine and Liquor, just a few blocks from Avenue Grill. He says whiskey is driving liquor sales growth. Particularly here in Colorado, because we have so many distilleries in Colorado also that make great whiskey, and so it's competitive for the out-of-state brands even. Vaughn's been in the liquor business for a long time, and he says the shift to whiskey has been dramatic. 10, 12 years ago, you couldn't give brown spirits away. And then people started tasting them and understanding the uniqueness. Vaughn credits the explosion of restaurants in Denver, many offering cocktails that people want to recreate. So much so that Vaughn has started to package whole drink kits for Manhattans or Old Fashions. Whiskey's had a run, but given the cyclical nature of liquor, could it be on the downswing soon? Oh God, I hope not. Back at Avenue Grill, Negley is appalled that I'd even suggest such a thing. It, whiskey's still on the rise. So there's, there were a ways from even hitting the peak. American whiskey alone accounted for $3.4 billion in U.S. sales last year and helped to drive record exports, too. 
That prompted the Distilled Spirits Council to proclaim American whiskey the toast of the global cocktail scene. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Finally today, Boulder clarinetist Kellen Tuhi drew inspiration from the Rocky Mountains for his new album, Scenes from Home. He collects five pieces by composers who've lived in Colorado, and like a great nature photograph, the music evokes a real sense of place and Tuhi's emotional connection to the land. Here's a taste of five scenes from Our Aspen Grove by composer Andrew Holliday. Clarinetist Kellen Tui, accompanied by pianist Suyun Kim. The track is Five Scenes from Our Aspen Grove, off Tui's new album, Scenes from Home. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.